Hello and welcome to Selling Sheet Music, a podcast for composers, arrangers, and songwriters to learn more about publishing and marketing their sheet music. I'm your host, Garrett Breeze. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by HolidayChoirMusic.com. Give your choir the gift of new music this holiday season by commissioning a new work or choosing from our exciting collection of music for Christmas, Easter, Hanukkah, and other holidays. Use the code PODCAST at checkout to get 50% off your first order. On the podcast today is Minneapolis-based composer Kyle Peterson. He's one of the most prominent names in the world of choral music today, having won the American Prize for Choral Composition in 2019 and the ACDA Genesis Prize in 2020. He currently has works in print with eight different publishers, making him an ideal person to talk about the state of the industry and the traditional publication process. He has a unique origin story as somebody who became a composer later in life after successful careers in education and the private sector. Our conversation covered so much ground that I had to split it up into two episodes to fit it all in. So, please enjoy part one of my interview with Kyle Peterson. Kyle Peterson, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hey, thanks, Garrett. Doing well. Thanks for having me. So, I was reading your bio online last night to prep, and uh, you've had quite the life journey to get to this point, as I understand it. Uh, Let's see if I missed anything. Degrees in philosophy, political science, secondary ed, you were a geography teacher, then an entrepreneur, then you went back to school for composition and decided to do music full-time, which is fascinating to me because that's kind of backwards from how most people tend to do it, right? The sort of cliche is to give music a go, and then if that doesn't work, you know, go go into something else. So... Do you, do you want to elaborate on what that journey was like and 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 finding your place within music specifically? Like, how did you come to realize, A, composition, but B, like what kind of music you wanted to write? Yeah. Well, you boiled three or so paragraphs of my bio down really succinctly. That's impressive in just two sentences. Nice job. Um, yeah. I mean, where... Where, where to go with a, with, a, with a big, hairy question like that? The, so I've always loved music. Um you know, thought I would be a composer when I was really, really young. Uh, from the first piano that, that came in my, my parents' living room, hopped up and, and started banging away and would have neighbors come in and, and, and affirm me. And so I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be a, a composer. And I would tell my piano teachers, this is what I want to do as well. Uh, but growing up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, it's not necessarily a hotbed of compositional uh, activity. And so uh, though I had incredible uh, piano teachers, they, they, they weren't necessarily able to stoke the, the compositional flame. Um, and it didn't really seem like a legitimate career path at that time for me. Uh, so I did a lot of things with teach, uh, with, with pia- playing piano and choirs and, and all sorts of, uh, musical things, but didn't actually, uh, go into music. I uh, kept it as a, as a hobby. And I came from a family of teachers. And so uh, I wanted to teach, loved the idea of teaching. And so I taught geography for, for many years. I, and then I created a company with a with another with a good friend of mine who was a, a colleague at the school, and we had collaborated on lots of geographic things with our with our students. And about and, and all this time, I was playing piano for a church choir um, here in in Minnesota, and, and loved that as well, keeping music a hobby. Uh, but the, and, and then also, I had a couple piano albums here here and there where I was arranging hymns and arranging uh, some Christmas carols. But at some point, uh, I approached my choir director. And I said at church and I said, I said, Bruce, I would love to, to write a choral piece. Would, would you mind if I arrange a choral piece? And he said, sure, give it a shot. That, that, that would be awesome. And so I arranged a choral piece 
he was gracious, gracious enough to allow us to, to do it. It was not very good. It, it really, I sent the sopranos up too high. I sent the basses down too low. Even my normally gracious sopranos in that choir got a little snarky and were, were telling <laughs> sopranos? me Sopranos? Like, Never. No, not, not the sopranos. Interesting piece, Peterson, they would say. Interesting piece. And I realized that <laughs> interesting is awesome when it's used in conjunction with things like beautiful or evocative or clever or, you know, engaging. But if it's just interesting, if that's the only thing that they can say about a piece, you're in trouble. So I, I revised the piece. It never really got awesome, but I loved it. I loved everything about getting my software hooked up, uh, learning about MIDI and this notational program and, and hearing your own music come to life. And so... Uh, that's what I, I, it was sort of this immediate thing where even though the piece wasn't very successful and that particular piece has never been published, I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I approached my business partner and I said, Joe, I want to sell my half of the company. I want to go back to school, uh, get a degree in music composition and then write music, which was, he had an interesting reaction. Like you want to do what? This is what? This this is not the average career path. And I was like, yeah, it's exactly right. Uh, But but a guy's got to do what a guy's got to do. So sold the company, went back uh, and got a degree in music and have been doing this um, essentially full time for the last five, six years, though I do work part time also in the worship arts team at at the Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Burnsville. In terms of the style of music that I love, I mean, I grew up listening to a ton, uh, like pop, blues, jazz, hymns, choral as a kid, and then all throughout and then I was, pl- as, a, as a classically trained piano player, I played all sorts of music, played lots of classical, but then also loved to play blues and jazz and uh, pop music and, and, and you name it. So when it came time to, to start writing choral music, uh, there's just all sorts of styles and genres that, that feel comfortable for me and that I love to listen to and that, that I naturally gravitate to. So stylistically, um, it really wasn't intentional that I would that I would write any particular style. I would just sort of just kind of experiment at the piano and see what comes up. And sometimes they're hymn arrangements. Sometimes they're new, sort of more traditional choral pieces. Sometimes they're arrangements of, of gospel tunes or spirituals. Uh, sometimes it's adaptations of pop music because uh, I, I just love it all uh, and, and and love listening to it and, and, and love hearing what other people are doing out in, in the field in those uh, genres as well. So when you studied composition, was that, with an emphasis on choral music, or did you cover everything? I mean, at what point did you decide choral is the way to go? Yeah, that's an interesting uh, sort of journey as well. When I went into the program, they had a, so uh, Vermont College of Fine Arts has a very interesting approach. And you can sort of, at the time at least, this was maybe five years ago, you, you sort of self-selected one of three or four different concentrations. And so there was a concert music uh, field, which which was the one that I selected. There was also singer songwriter field, uh, film music, electronic music, uh, and, and there were students all across the country that would converge for these intense residencies. You got to hear a, a whole variety. And I went in knowing that I wanted to write concert music, uh, but and assuming that I would eventually gravitate to choral music because that's what I grew up singing and that's what seemed most comfortable to me. Uh, aside from the piano, I don't really play an instrument very well. Have a little bit of background in in, in the bass and a little bit in guitar, uh, but that was about it. So I, it wasn't like I was thinking I'm going to be an amazing orchestrator uh, or, or write a lot of instrumental music. But I wanted to get better at that because I knew eventually I would gravitate towards choral music. I thought this is my chance to get better at, at my orchestrating chops and writing instrumental music. And so the whole time I was there, um, I would I would noodle in choral music and and write sort of little mini assignments in, in 
in choral music. But my big projects, my end of semester activities were always sort of these, these bigger instrumental uh, compositions. And so I wrote a couple of string quartets. I wrote a couple of brass quintets. I wrote for an, like an eclectic eight to 10 sort of chamber ensemble, uh, which really helped because now when I'm writing instrumental parts, I've just got a lot more background and a lot sort of more skills to, to draw on. Though I knew eventually that I would, I would, I would hone in on choral. At some point, I'd love to to, to write more string uh, quartets and quintets and ensembles and, and brass and, and eventually maybe a full uh, orchestra. Uh, but I'm, I'm just having such a good time right now digging into choral that uh, that I haven't had a chance yet. That's so smart to to focus on the part that you're not as comfortable with. I think so many people are just like, I like this thing, so I'm going to go study more of this thing. And not that not that you can't make it that way, but uh, I I just feel like when you're so familiar with a particular genre, you 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 get there either way, I guess. Yeah. 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 It was, there were some awkward moments. <laughs> My first brass quintet, I treated it <laughs> I'd like a string, like a string quartet where I had them playing throughout. I figured they can, essentially they don't need to breathe. I forgot that a brass player needs to breathe. And I had these, you know, really long phrases and some high phrases. And I just thought, well, brass players will figure it out. And, and my mentor just sort of scratched his head and said, Kyle, you know, a brass, a brass player needs to breathe. And so then I would like add a one rest, like a quarter rest here and an eighth rest here. And like, no, no, Kyle, a brass player needs to breathe, you know, for several measures at a time. Like you need to have them lay out. <laughs> uh, so it was, so the first, I mean, I think I had some nice melodic and harmonic ideas. So it, it wasn't a complete um, disaster, <laughs> but, but my second brass quintet got a lot better. I gave them, and in fact, a couple of them played on both of them and they approached me later. They said, thank you for growing as a, as a brass writer. Uh, this is actually much more playable and, and enjoyable for us. We're not dying up there on the vine. <laughs> well, if you thought, if you thought sopranos were mean, just wait till you meet the trumpets. Oh man, man, they let, they laid into me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you, you've written about writing in the intersection of faith and music, as you call mm -hmm. it, and, mm -hmm. and sort of the blurring of sacred and secular. And I find that very interesting because I feel like the conventional wisdom anyway is that uh, the world is getting more secular. And, and I wonder what's your take on that and what's your take on, I mean, obviously you work as a church musician, so that yeah. influences your writing, but... Um, I, I'm, I'm very curious to hear more about this. Well, yes. The, so I, Einstein is sometimes attributed as saying, though I, I think there's some question as to whether he actually said it or somebody else, but it's this idea that there are two types of people, uh, one who thinks that nothing is a miracle, and then one who thinks that all is a miracle, that everything out there is a miracle. Uh, and I tend to fall in that, that camp. Um, though I, I tend not to like dualities uh, and, and, and binary kinds of things. But this idea that, that everything around us, so my own personal sort of theology is that, uh, is that God is the one in whom we live, move, and have our being, that everything around us is filled with this sort of sacred presence of, of spirit. And that that spirit is living and moving and working uh, in, in all things at all times. So for me, there really isn't a, a purely secular realm uh, because all things are filled with this, this presence. Um, so that's kind of, I, so that's sort of my overall philosophy, but in, in particular, I find that there's all sorts of, you know, there's lots of research now on this idea of the nuns, people who don't identify with any particular denomination or specific uh, religious tradition, but still uh, 
have this idea of of something that that transcends the everyday, that transcends the physical, that that essentially is spiritual. They're spiritual, but not religious, as, as some people might phrase it. And so, uh, and so I love working at, at, at that sort of level, uh, thinking about how we can invite um, the audiences and singers to 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 live into this idea that that we are spiritual beings and that that we are in community together and that there are are, are ways of living in community well, which to me is a is a again, it's a spiritual sort of sacred thing. Yeah, and I feel like your music is super personal. When I when I look at the texts that you're writing and the, the topics that you're choosing to write about, it all, seems, it all seems very personal. And I'm wondering how you do that as a composer when you're not the one writing the text. How are you able to connect so deeply and express these personal things, but it's not your words? Yeah, that's a... So it's an interesting journey there too. I, I, I'd say maybe 30% of my pieces use other people's words. So texts that I find or that I commission for a particular project or that I adapt. Um, and maybe 70% of the texts I actually do write myself. Uh, in some respects, I considered myself a writer even before I considered myself a composer. Back when I was first working for church, maybe 15 years ago, I would be the one that would be tapped to if we wanted to sort of uh, I hate to use the term update or modernize a particular hymn text, um, but writing prayers, adapting uh, hymn texts and those kinds of things. Uh, and I always loved writing. And so, and, and for a while, I envisioned myself as a singer songwriter. This was maybe a couple decades ago. So I've got all sorts of uh, drafts of early drafts of, of pretty bad lyrics that I was, I, I was noodling in. So thought of myself as a writer uh, and I'm always sort of looking for for ideas to capture and and maybe uh, put into a song to to sort of fashion into a text that would work chorally. Um, so it, it's easier then because I, I take personal experiences. Uh, I'm, I'm always open to these ideas of like what what are my kids saying and doing? Did I hear something on a podcast? Uh, you know, certainly inspiration from nature. Uh, might hear, uh, you know, my pastor at church say a couple of phrases and think, oh, that there's something really, really incredibly poignant about this, those three words. That three-word phrase has got to find its way into a choral text. And so I've got a file where I keep track of all of these things and maybe fashion them into to lyrics down the road. And then when I'm taking somebody else's work and their words, that's very personal to them and setting it. Uh, yeah, it's a, I don't, I, it's, it's a little, probably a little bit of an art more than it is a science trying to sort of in, inhabit those those words, that text as much as possible. And, and to see what emerges from there, um, what, what music suggests itself, uh, which is sometimes very challenging, uh, but, but a joy when uh, it, it comes out well. Well, and you have done something successfully, I might add, that a lot of composers are afraid to do, and that is write about other people's experiences and write from the perspectives of other people uh, you know, if specifically we can we can jump into Call Across, uh, mm -hmm. the piece the piece for which you won the Genesis Prize, and and you're tackling different cultures in and you know Norway and Zimbabwe and you're kind of all over the place. How do you write about what you don't know? Yeah, that <laughs> because uh, let's because see. <laughs> and, and and I ask because a lot of times. Uh, uh, commissioners will request something specifically, and it might not be a different culture, but it might be something that just you're not familiar with, and that's part of the job, right? Is is yep. is meeting people where they are and giving them what they want. Yeah, for that particular piece, 
I, I actually hired a two ethnomusicologists who had experience and background and expertise in uh, the Kulak call from the sort of the, the shepherding call from Norway and other Scandinavian countries. And uh, another ethnomusicologist who was deeply familiar with, with uh, parts of African culture uh, and, and, and Shona. So, because I, I knew, especially uh, working outside my comfort zone with, with cultures that I, I don't know a whole lot about, um, wanted to be sure that I was honoring them, which is always the intent. Uh, but sometimes that that intent can uh, can get lost, uh, and, and sometimes even with a with, with intent to to honor, you trip on yourself and, and and make some bad decisions. So when I'm working way outside, like with other languages, other cultures, I make sure that I am I'm working with and collaborating with people who 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 have a, a real good sort of embedded perspective. So that was a very important along the way for that. There is something I think to be said for uh, this, this idea that, that all experience, all human experience is human experience. And that at some level we can identify and, uh, and at some level things transcend culture. So I, I do like to advocate for that idea as well, that just because something is, is native to a particular culture that might not be mine, this idea that, that I too can participate in it, that I can appreciate it, that I can, I can work with it in an, in a, uh, respectful way with integrity. Uh, I can collaborate with people who are embedded in that culture and, and, and then hopefully make something that, that will resonate broadly uh, across a variety of cultures. That's, that's the hope at least. Yeah. Well, and I think there's a lot to be said from what you can learn from other cultures and other musical traditions. And, 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 and I don't, I don't think we want to lose that, you know, as a, as a profession, as composers. Yeah, there's Kurt Connect. I don't know if, if you have interviewed him for this podcast, but he's the founder of Music Spoke, for example, and brilliant thinker and organist and composer. He has a just a, a recent series on cultural appropriation, like a three-part series that he wrote uh, that's getting a lot of traction that I actually think should eventually be uh, sort of required reading in, in the field. It's just a beautiful sort of both a historical walk uh, with some very profound th- thoughts and evocative thoughts on on what cultural appropriation is, isn't, um, how to approach it, how to approach working uh, w- with integrity and respect w- with and in other cultures. Is that available online I, that that anyone can access? Yeah, I think I found it on his Facebook feed. Um, I imagine, and I'm not sure what other platforms he might he might be on and, and, and put that out there, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's getting some good traction. I can link it to you. I was gonna say, if, 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 we, if we can find it, I'll, I'll link that in the episode yeah. notes. Yeah. Speaking of collaboration, you had a great feature in a recent choral journal about working with lyricists. And I wanted to ask, when you're working with somebody creating an original text, how much does the musical form that you want to write dictate that process? Or how much does your roadmap of the piece or, you know, it's a, it's a chicken or the egg thing, I guess, is what I'm asking. You know, do you just take the text and build the music around that? Or do you have a structure in mind? You know, for a lot of instrumental composition in particular, you know, it's very rigid to, you know, this is a sonata form, or this is a concerto, or this is a symphony, yeah. or what have you. I mean, is there is there a is there a discussion that happens with the lyricist? Like, well, we want this to be song form, or we want this to be blank. It, it all depends. It's like, right now, I'm uh, working with uh, Brian Newhouse, 
brilliant lyricist, lives here in the Twin Cities as well, and done a few projects. He actually wrote Call Across as well. And, and it, it was two sort of different procedures. With this most recent piece, I asked him, we wanted to get something that was very sort of a pop, it would eventually sort of make its way into more of a pop sort of a format. So either, either like verse chorus, or maybe just uh, more strophic, where it's just sort of a straight through, uh, like a verse that repeats, but not a lot of text, something that would be maybe even easy for the audience to enter into and to participate and sing also, something that would be super accessible, sort of instantly um, memorable. That was kind of the goal, uh, very condensed. And so, and, and I knew that going in. And so I said, Brian, here's kind of what, what needs to happen um, lyrically. And that was resonating with what, how he probably would have approached the project as well, based on what he heard sort of as the parameters and, and the vision from the commissioner. And so Brian wrote this really, really awesome, elegantly simple, uh, heartfelt, short text uh, that then allowed me to sort of think about things in more of a pop sort of form. And it ends up sort of taking a verse chorus and then a bridge back to a double chorus kind of form. At least that's how it's shaping up now. In Call Across, Brian, there wasn't really as much, we knew we wanted to have three different cultures and we had sort of collaborated on, on that. Like this, this, this seems to, to be a good idea. And, but we didn't know exactly what, he didn't know what he wanted to say. And I didn't have any predetermined idea of, of how I wanted the piece to be or, or, or feel. And so he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote as Brian loves to do. And I mean, pages and pages, and then eventually kind of condensed and condensed. Uh, and, and then it ended up with, with probably more than he thought we'd have and more than I thought we'd have. I thought it was maybe going to be originally like a three to five minute piece, but the text that, that he provided at, at least a certain stage of the creation process was much longer. There'd be no way that we could do it in just three to five minutes. It, it, it became sort of a seven to eight minute piece because there was, I didn't want to, to shrink it down and condense it because it was just so powerful what he had written as he had written it. And so then I so just sort of, well, that just becomes then my challenge to, to adapt and, and let the text be what it wants and then let the music sort of evolve from there, which was kind of a new thing for me. That's not typically how I, how I worked. So when you're writing, do you end up with the same thing, you know, pages and pages of unused material on the floor? I mean, what is your compositional process like? I know that's such a boring question, no. but I have to ask it. You know, I, sometimes I, I think that I should have more unused material within a piece because I talked to other composers and you're exactly right. They're like, Oh, we've got, you know, I started off with 10 minutes worth and then I, I cut and I boil it down to three. Um, I've got a ton of uh, what I call noodles, like a 30 second noodles or even like a minute and a half noodle that never sees the light of day that, that never makes it beyond sort of my computer or my, my cell phone, my, my memos, voice memos. But once I'm actually in a piece, then of course, there's ideas I come up with that, that aren't going to work, um, but I but I rarely find myself with with you know ten, eight to ten minutes of of what I think might be possible material and then and then condense it. Um, I, I either tend to work in more short bursts where I, I work on an idea and then I sort of try to flesh it out and unravel it and then move on to the next idea. Um, it's also possible that I settle entirely too soon for an idea and I, and I don't pursue, you know, like five or six different ideas and then have to, to cut them later. I suppose that's possible. Um, but, I, but I've been told I, I tend to, to write more like a singer songwriter approaches music where um, 
where I find chord progressions, I find sort of riffs and motives, and then things just sort of evolve from there. And it's sort of this organic process. Sometimes text influences lyric. This is if I'm writing the lyric. Text influences lyric, and then that influences the text and then the, the music, and it just kind of weaves back and forth, this sort of iterative process. And then and then a piece sort of feels cohesive. Uh, that's probably the best, well, maybe not the best way I could describe it, but the, the way that occurs to me to describe it now. Um, are you doing this in a, a finale or Sibelius? Are you a pencil paper guy? Oh, I wish I could do pencil paper. I, mar- I marvel at those people who can, you know, I reposed by the river with my manuscript paper and the sun was shining and I created a, this. It's like, I don't, that doesn't work at all for me. I, yeah, then we're over, the here with our, we're over here with our voice memos. <laughs> if anyone can see my right. phone, I right. mean. <laughs> so I've got, I, yeah, voice memos and then, and then I'll noodle it out on the piano. And sometimes it's, you know, sometimes the, the voice memo is at the piano. And then once I have a good enough idea, like I think I'm going to run with this, then I'll go right to finale uh, and, and everything. And I've got all sorts of stops and starts in finale um, and even more in, in voice memos. Well, I have to ask about your setup. No one else can see this because this is an audio format, but I'm going to do it anyway because you've got basically, it looks like an <laughs> electronic organ, you know, with yes. three or four consoles. And then you've got the the computer monitors on other side. So is that is that your home base or is that yeah. just for practicing? That, well, that's it's for show, Garrett. It's just for show. The, <laughs> so before I really dove into choral composing, I really had this idea that I was going to be um, sort of a, a new, a modern style organist. Because uh, I played piano for years and I loved it. And I thought I, I would love to, to, to play more organ uh, at church. And this was kind of in, in the phase when I was really trying to reimagine hymns. And, and think like, what? how could hymns sound different? How could they be experienced differently? What other sounds can an organ make? And so I started taking organ lessons, bought this uh, practice organ behind me that's this all digital, realized early on that it was way more difficult than I had anticipated. Coordinating the, the feet with the hands, it was, was a, a whole new frustrating experience. So I did not... I mean, I can kind of play, but but not nearly well enough to actually play in church or, or any other place. So, but it, it provides a great compositional tool. So I moved it up here uh, where it, it largely sits in, until I need to create a piece that has some sort of organ accompaniment or something. Uh, the, the possibilities with this digital organ are remarkable with the Hopwork software that you can simulate all sorts of famous organs around the, the world. But it stays there. Um, below me here is my, yeah, my finale work desk uh, keyboard. So this is kind of where the the actual inputting happens. And then I've got a, a really nice uh, grand piano downstairs that looks out over sort of the backyard woodsy area, which is more of the uh, inspirational spot where, where I'm able to noodle and and sort of uh, squirrel away when, when the kids get too loud or noisy or I just need to escape. <laughs> Spoken like a true Minnesotan. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's what I do then, yeah. <laughs> um, what is your most... Uh, valuable or useful uh, bit of software that is not uh, Finale? Ooh, cool question. Well, aside from the iPhone, which, <laughs> which of course I use daily for the voice memos, um, for a while, it was probably logic. Uh, I, I, I'm not proficient by any stretch, but there have been a couple projects where I, I integrated logic into it. And, and I was fascinated with, with you know the layering of sounds and, and providing uh, sort of different loops to choirs who could then practice and improvise over the top of these loops. And so 
Uh, and since I've always loved pop music, uh, and just these ideas of how many different layers of sound can we get that kind of just just build up uh, into this sort of frenzy of of awesomeness. So, and I haven't used it now for for many many months. And each time I go back to it, it's like, okay, what did I learn about Logic before, and how, what? Did, uh, I, I wish I retained more of it, but that definitely uh, is is an amazing workhorse of a, of a program. Yeah, good answer. Um, <laughs> um, this is backtracking a little bit, but I wanted to to jump back to Call Across for a little bit because I mm -hmm. learned today that uh, the submission for the Genesis Prize that you won was not the actual music, but a proposal to write the music. That's right. And so I wanted to get your take on how do you make your music sound interesting Be verbally because what I, 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 I it's happened to me so many times that I write what I think is this really cool piece of music and then I'll like tell my wife or one of my friends about it and I'll realize this sounds exactly the same as every other piece of music I've ever written <laughs> there's nothing you know there's not there's nothing verbally that I can do to make it sound Cool, you know, and 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 this comes up writing product descriptions. It comes up writing grant proposals. It's so hard to explain in words what it is that makes a piece of music interesting or unique or special. Yeah, it, well, and I worry. I sympathize with you because it was certainly easier the first couple of years I was doing this because I, I did not have a a bunch of repertoire out there. And so every description that I was writing or thinking about was like, oh, I could say this about this piece and this would be a new way of describing this. Now that I've got, you know, dozens of pieces out there, I, when, I'm, when I'm crafting my own descriptions for my website and suggested descriptions for publishers, I oftentimes think like, that didn't I say that already? I said, I'm using these same words. Uh, and then I find, well, not only am I using those words, but other composers that I really like, they're using those words as well. And so are we all just sounding the same? So I, I totally empathize with, with what you're saying. I think that my background, again, I, I thought of myself as a writer, still sometimes do. Um, and, my, and my background teaching, there's just a lot of writing. There's a lot of description. There's a lot of, um, and, and trying to make things interesting as a teacher trying to. So I, I'm sort of well-versed at at this idea of, of selling an idea, selling a lesson. Uh, as, as a business owner, previously selling a product, and I was oftentimes the one charged with writing the product description for, for this particular course that, or this professional development opportunity that we were, we were offering. Um, but I am really familiar with thesaurus.com. I have that up there. I'm not too <laughs> proud to admit that like, I need a different word that means awesome or incredible or that sort of thing. Yeah, well, this is one area that I think AI will save us, but... Indeed. <laughs> there, there's not many, there's not many, but but coming yeah, up with new one. words for product descriptions, that, that might be one. Um, <clears throat> you know, I do think we have a lot of listeners uh, who are coming into composition or self-publishing as, as maybe a second or third act or a, a side hustle or, or whatever you want to call it, you know. There, it usually uh, is that, yeah. And, and I'm wondering, because you had a couple of different careers first and then came into it, how do you think that has made your music different than if you had just gone straight into composition out of high school and just started writing? Yeah, I think about that a little bit. Um, just, and I, of course, it's hard to, hard to know what I would be writing um, had I just gone right out of college and, and, and started. I think there's something to be said for... Um, so musically for me, everything was just sort of latent. It just sort of, I, I had all sorts of ideas. I remember doing lots of noodling on the piano in my teens, 20s, and 30s on all sorts of things, you know, 
carols, hymns, other ideas, the singer-songwriter phase that I thought that I was going to maybe dive into. Um, so almost none of those ideas went anywhere. They just were sort of just me noodling around and playing and, and just sort of, um, in retrospect, I was, I was working my craft. I was, I was playing around with harmonies and melodies and structure and proportion and all of that. I wasn't, but not thinking about it in any sort of formal way. And all the time, listening to a ton of different music, being exposed to different music, both in choirs and uh, just in my own personal listening. So I think having decades, you know, three or so professional decades of, of work in other fields where, I, where the music thing was just a hobby, and we just sort of simmering around, um, allowed some things to, to catch on and to take. Then when I did dive into to composing, can then sort of pour out. And it really did feel like this outpouring. Um, even when I just had maybe my first piece or two published, I had, it was just sort of this, this feverish um, uh, outpouring just comes to mind of, of, of pieces that I was like, oh, here's, here's a blues piece and here's a gospel piece and a pop piece and a kind of a country piece and then a, a more typical choral piece. And it just all sort of poured out, which certainly would not have happened had I started writing right away. Um, so I, I'd like to think that there's, there's something about that, that it, it, and for me, it's a very much trial and error process. Um, even now that I've got a sort of official degree in music composition, I, I would, one might assume that that means that that I really approach things from a very sophisticated um, intellectual way, which really isn't the case. Um, I, I'm very much, as I mentioned earlier, sort of a singer, songwriter, composer in, in the sense that that it's trial and error. I, I get with my instrument, the piano. I've got maybe a, a little bit of a text, a little bit of a harmony, maybe a, a, a bit of a sort of a rhythm idea. And then it just sort of what happens next? What What is this? What does this idea want to do next? What does this lyric want to do next? And I'm not sure that I would have approached things like that had I had more official formal training earlier in my life and had I um, gone into it right away. The other thing is that so many people who start off right after college writing, if that's their, their profession, it's, it's so tough to make it, uh, especially full time. As you mentioned, most composers have, you know, they're, they're cobbling together several things. Uh, and composition is just one of the things that they do, whether it's teaching or gigging or, uh, or something completely out of the industry. And so there, but there's a lot of pressure when you come out to write what you think will sell. Like if there's a lot of pressure to make money right away, like this is what I'm doing, then, then that can kind of dictate well, I, 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 my commissioner wants me to write that, so I better write that. That's that's where I need to do it in order to 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 make the money, uh, to pay the to pay the invoice, to pay rent. Whereas for me, if you're more established and and you've got other income sources, and you can just say, well, for me, it was what do I want to write? What do I what what wants to pour out today? Uh, which is really freeing. I mean, incredibly fortunate. I don't uh, just just remarkably fortunate to, that I have the you know the resources and the time. Uh, in order to to dive into different sorts of musical interests that I might have. Well, I think at this point we've scared away the casual listener. So let's jump into <laughs> working with publishers. <laughs> yes. Thank you for listening to another episode of Selling Sheet Music. If you like the show, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email Garrett at breezetunes.com to get in touch with me, and you can find my music at GarrettBreeze.com. Selling Sheet Music is written, produced, and hosted by me, Garrett Breeze. Post-production for this episode was done by Jacob Molaski, and our theme music was written by myself and David Dykstra. 
I'll see you next week. Now go write something. 